0: Welcome to Extreme Genes brought to you by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, a collection is growing of letters from the front of every war in the history of the United States. Hi, I'm Fisher, and I'll be talking to Andrew Carroll, the director of the Million Letter Project. You'll hear how he started it, you'll hear what he's got, and how you'll be able to access some of these, or maybe even contribute to it. Plus, we'll have another Ask Us Anything with David Allen Lambert from the New England Historic Genealogical Society. That's this week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, brought to you by FamilySearch.org. Discover, gather, connect, a presentation of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Welcome to America's Family History Show, Extreme Genes and ExtremeGenes.com. It is Fisher here, your radio root sleuth, on the program where we shake your family tree and watch the nuts fall out. And this episode is brought to you by TV's Relative Race. Season six is happening right now. What an episode just aired this past week. You got to see it if you haven't streamed it we got another one coming up Sunday night, and it is so good to have you along. Boy, we've got a great interview coming up. We touched on this last week a little bit, the Million Letter Project, the guy who started collecting a few letters that had been written by soldiers in the field in all the different wars of America, and now his collection's over like 130,000 And what has happened with that? We're going to talk to Andrew Carroll about his project, how you can participate in it, where you can look into what he's got in his collection, all coming up in about 10 minutes in two parts. It's going to be really good. And look who should appear in my ear, direct from RootsTech London, where have you been all my life? It's David Allen Lambert.
1: Hey, how are you, Fish? (laughs)
0: It's great to be here. It is the chief genealogist of the New England Historic Genealogical Society and AmericanAncestors.org. What's great to have you back, first of all. Have you gotten your, your sleep readjusted?
1: Every time zone is a different day. <laughs> and then I got to have daylight savings time in the U.K., now in America. It's, it's great. Right. It is a little bit different. So you gave a lecture over there. I did. I gave a lecture on how to use social media to create family reunions. So using cameras to bring those people who can't get to a family reunion creating these groups online on Facebook that you can collect photos, share stories, pop up that picture that you don't know who's in it, well maybe the other 37 cousins can help you and you have to wait for that family reunion, have one every week. Wow. They had 7,000 people at RootsTech, but that didn't compare to what was down the hall. <laughs> I got to see Wonder Woman, Batman, Superman, Spider-Man. Oh no. 175,000 participants of Comic-Con London. Wow. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and any of those superheroes come into one of your lectures? Lectures? I was hoping. Yeah. I was yeah, hoping. Right. So did you find some Extreme Genes listeners there?
1: I did, actually. In fact, I met a listener from Slovenia Ooh. and a very nice listener from Sweden named Linda Kivist. And Linda, hello from Extreme Jean Studio. I told you I'd give you a shout out. Oh, well, there you go. And I have ancestry from Sweden. I'm three-eighths Swedish. I, I, so I could have met so, your cousin. Yeah, and I could did actually been. meet my cousin at RootsTech. I got to give a membership to Donnie Osmond, who was our keynote. Uh, we share a colonial New England ministry. Minister, and it was a great conference. I met people from all around the world, and again, I'm- people that listen to Extreme Genes.
0: Awesome. Yeah. And what else did you learn there? What news did you bring back Well, you know,
1: The big news really is Ancestry's announcement in regard to going to France and copying out church records. So that's going to be a big thing. And there's also a new company on the horizon for Americans. It already exists in the UK and it's called nameandplace.co.uk. So what they do is there's a guild of one name studies, but this place name deals with a location. So if it's a town you grew up in or maybe it's a place your ancestors came from. They collaborate with you, create a web page, and give you all the building blocks, and you fill in the information. So essentially you're doing something for the greater good of your community and for somebody who might have ancestors from there. That's awesome. Yeah. That's, so. that's a good one. Well, let's get to our family history news then. David, where
0: do you want to start?
1: Well, DNA is always one of those subjects that becomes controversial. On Technology Review, this story talks about Match being a national security risk, saying that possibly the DNA could be extracted by Russia or China to identify our spies or perhaps even our diplomats. Or better yet, it may allow them to create fake accounts to claim they're a long-lost relative.
0: Wow. That would be a weird thing, wouldn't it? really
1: it? would. I mean, I don't know about you, but if this long-lost relative wants to give me money, I'm more than happy yeah. to
0: accept it. There you go. Well, you know, the, and there are risks when it comes to DNA, and we have to be aware of those things. And we do talk about it on Extreme Genes now and again, but we are about, obviously, techniques and tools for genealogy, and we've seen much success with it. But we do need to be aware and
1: take into consideration possibilities, right? And they do warn us. Nothing in this world is really 100% secure. And I don't know about you, as a genealogist. Just I'm willing to take that risk to find the potential connection that paper trails won't find for us. And I've seen far more good come from it than bad. Exactly. Well, our next story is about a 103 year old gentleman who passed away. He was the oldest survivor from the Battle of Iwo Jima, February 1945. John Moon was a 27 year old veteran from the Chicago area, and he went out. He later went on to live a very happy and healthy life. He went on to have many jobs, including running two restaurants, worked as a carpenter, a bus driver, and even was a life insurance salesman. Wow. But he became a viral sensation because he was a very spry centenarian and being a Marine, was up there talking with a lot of the Marine groups and veterans groups. So sadly, we've lost another of the greatest
0: generation. Wouldn't that have been a, a great kick for a lot of these young Marines to meet a man like that?
1: I hope that many of our Marines and other service people get to live through that century mark and pass on their stories to the next generation of veterans. You know, as we look towards our life, there's that end chapter. And in Vancouver, you can now opt in to be three family members deep in a grave plot. Yes, that means... Three for the price of one.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, they have a space problem up there. Mm -hmm. And so the government, the local government there said, well, we got to do something about this. So they've passed a law that allows you to put three people deep. You have to opt in before you take your final trip. (laughs) What's funny is, though, some experts are comparing this to like Lyft and Uber that you share the ride, (laughs) except you've already arrived at your final destination.
1: That's true. And that final destination is recorded on Billion Graves and Find a Grave (laughs) for you conveniently. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly, And you don't have to be related, by the way. Well, that's about all I have for Family History News, and it's delightful to be in studio with you once again. Don't forget, if you're not a member of American Ancestors, you can do so and save $20 by using our coupon code EXTREME. Catch you around on the flip side. All right, David. Thank you so much. Great to see you. Of course, you're coming
0: back in a little bit because we're going to do another round of Ask Us Anything. All right. I'll be here. And I got to tell you, I got a big kick out of reading this article that we've got linked to on our website, ExtremeGenes.com. It's from Smithsonian, and it's an article about my next guest. His name is Andrew Carroll. He's based in the Washington, D.C. area. And Andrew, welcome to Extreme Genes. Great to have you.
2: It is great to be with you.
0: And, you know, your story is just amazing because, uh, like many of us who get interested in family history and the histories of our families... There's so much overlap into history in general as well. But you started with a family history story. Were you in your teens when you got your first war letters?
2: Oh no, no. He, he, here's the thing. I hated history. Uh, <laughs> Me I had too. No, yeah, had no and had no interest in any kind of genealogy that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, I was an English major in college, and during my sophomore year, our family's house in Washington D.C., which is where I'm from burned to the ground Ugh. and it was right about this period it was uh, you know coming into the holidays and so forth and nobody was hurt which is the most important thing my dad was in the house uh, I was up at college in New York uh, but he got out alive our little pet cat got out which was clawed we were thrilled by it and all that but everything went up in smoke and it was losing all of that family memorabilia that i had taken for granted that really kind of sparked this interest in wanting to learn more about you know family history but the biggest well the two big things that happened were first a distant cousin of mine who served in world war ii heard about the fire through the family grapevine and so his name is james Carroll jordan he called to see how we were doing and i said well jim you know everyone's okay but we lost you know our letters our photos all that great memorabilia he said you know it's interesting." thing you say that because i was just going through my old world war ii footlocker now he was you know this is decades after the sure. war and i came across a letter that i completely forgot i'd written and i'll send it to you so i get in the mail this three page onion skin you know on the original uh, paper uh description to his wife he's 23 years old he's in europe it's the end of the war it's uh, april uh, 1945 and it starts dear betty ann I saw something today that makes me realize while we're over here fighting this war. And he went into graphic detail about walking through the Nazi concentration camp at Buchenwald, wow. and how traumatized he was by what he had seen. Because the camp had just been liberated, so people were still dying. Because even though the American medics and other people were trying to help them, you know, they were so malnourished, so sure. uh, you know, had diseases and all that, they were dying in front of them. So this is a really, you know, for a 23-year-old, uh, that's a young man, you know, really impacted by this. So I called him back and I said, Jim, this is one of the most extraordinary things I've ever read. And he said, and I said, of course I'll return it to you. And he. Said, you know, just keep it. I probably would have thrown it out anyway. Huh? So, and the story that I don't often tell people, um, the, the, what the real follow up to this was I was at a Christmas party talking to this very attractive young woman, and I was telling her about the fire and, and then, you know, the, my cousin's letter. She says, you know what? That's really incredible because my grandfather and grandmother just uh, celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary. And my grandfather pulled out of his pocket and read aloud a letter that he wrote when he was also 23 years old, also serving World War II. And as it turned out, the two guys were both from Ohio, uh, which they didn't know each other, but it was just interesting all the sort of the similarities. Mm-hmm. And he was literally writing from like a foxhole as mortars are flying overhead. And he's just describing to his brother and his father what he was going through as a forward observer, which is a very dangerous oh, position. Oh, sure. That's kind and of he, like
0: being the point man, right? You're
2: the, you're the one, you're almost like, you know, almost behind the enemy, you know, yeah. seeking out stuff. And what, And he started out the letter by saying, don't tell mom or Shirley, who is his new wife, what I'm about to tell you. They think I'm kind of in the back, you know, out of harm's way. So he goes on to describe, again, what he was going through. And, and so what Anne, my dear friend, said to me was, I never knew this side of my grandfather. Like, he never talked yeah. about his war experiences. And here we have this letter about, you know, the, the life and death circumstances under which he was living.
0: Isn't that exciting? And, and, you know, I've gone through this, too. My mother was born in 1924. And she was a member of a large family with a lot of sons. And three of them were involved in World War II. And as I read your article, I started thinking about this. I've got one who was in the Navy, who was in the Atlantic side of the Atlantic theater and in the attack on Italy and Sicily. And then another one who was on the Pacific side and his ship was cut in half by a Japanese destroyer. And they they barely survived that one. And then another one, the youngest one who got injured in training down in Alabama and felt embarrassed about it because of his older brothers and everything. And so I've got letters about all these different things. And I was actually thinking, you know, it would be great to take this and write about my Olson family relatives in World War II and tell their story through their letters back and forth and the things that I'd heard and the things that we can find online as well and and put a family story together about that because I think it'd just be incredible.
2: And I'm sure that there are so many families out there doing that, and I encourage those who aren't, you know, go to the attic, go to the basement, wherever you keep those old, you know, boxes full. Like, my, my father just passed recently, so we're going through his belongings, and coming across stuff that we really wish we could have asked him about. Because we're like, wait, where was this picture taken? Or, wait, why do you have this letter from a president of the United States or, you know, being photographed yeah. with someone – you know, talking to Ann about her grandfather's letter and seeing my cousin's letters, what sort of inspired me to reach out to talk to more veterans about what do you do with your old correspondences. And just through word of mouth, you know, teachers or coaches or ever neighbors who are veterans, um, I started getting, you know, maybe a dozen or so letters and it was about a hundred letters. And at that point I realized, you know, this could really turn into an initiative. So I started what was called the Legacy Project back in 1998. So I've been doing this for more than 20 oh, years. Oh, wow. And and the point was, because the, the, I, w- I use the word legacy because I want us to preserve the legacy of our troops and our veterans and their families. Right. And so on a whim, I wrote to Dear Abbey. Now, again, this is 20 years ago, and people read newspapers, <laughs> and they were you know, widely circulated. Yes. And... She agreed to write a column about the Legacy Project and encourage Americans, if they had a war letter, to send it to the little post office box I had set up in Washington. And uh, it ran on Veterans Day 1998, and about three days later, the post office called, and they were furious. And they were like, you have to get down here now and start picking up your mail. And I'd got just the cheapest little box they had. Bins and bins and bins of letters were coming in. Wow. And that was the genesis of all this. And I had no intention of doing, you know, a book or anything. We've since done two New York Times bestsellers. And I only say that because the letters are so amazing. Sure. Jumping ahead a little bit, we did uh, books and documentaries. And I'd amassed a collection of about 100 thousand war letters from every conflict in U.S. history. That's we have nuts. original handwritten letters from the Revolution up to emails to, you know, in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I realized, and I was doing this as kind of a one-man operation, I really need to donate this collection somewhere. Sure. And so uh, long story short, a theater professor at Chapman University, which is actually where I'm talking from. I'm, I'm out in California right now, uh, called to say, you know, we've got a really great theater program here. I've read about your project. I've read some of the letters. I think it could be a play. So sure enough, I came out here. We workshop the script, it, it has since gone to the Kennedy Center, it's gone to really you know, prestigious venues across the country. We've had Annette Benning and uh, uh, Gary Cole and Laura wow. Dern and, and Common, and really great actors being a part of this. So it's, it's kind of exploded. But the point is, when I came out to Chapman just to work on this play, I fell in love with the university. And so I spoke with it was then President Jim Doty, and I said, listen, I will give you the entire collection for free, but I just want to promise that you guys will kind of expand it you know, long after I'm gone and so forth. And he and and then Chancellor, now President, Daniele Strupa said, listen, we would love the collection, and we will make a whole center out of this. So we, in fact, changed the name of the Legacy Project to the Center for American War Letters. And so I'm working with the director of it. And it just, it couldn't be a better home. And it's great because you know, they have you know, high-tech archives and all that. And so we're still getting hundreds and hundreds of letters coming in. And, and, and we, you know my goal is to get it up to at least a million. And <laughs> it, every time I think we've exhausted a subject matter, like love letters or combat letters, someone shares with me something I've never seen before and that's why I'm so passionate about this project because I know out there there are still so many incredible letters and we have teachers calling us saying we want to use these letters in our history classes or our English classes because the kids are really connecting with them and it's just so great to see the project you know grow and expand wow. you know and again for anyone out there who may have letters or has a way of you know getting the word out to veterans uh you know we have a very simple website it's just warletters.us and again we're called the Center for American War Letters and it's just you know you, you know been talking to you about, you know, the letters you have and how unusual they were, are. And I'd love to kind of hear more about that. Um, it just, again, I'm, I'm constantly surprised by what's out there and how amazing they are. So
0: you said a hundred thousand letters and you're thinking there are well, obviously millions more out there. There well, must they, be, you know, right?
2: Yeah. Because it, t- just take world war two alone. Sure. So 16 million Americans served in world war two. Now, if all of them just wrote one letter yep. during the whole war that now, now I have a couple, for example, this is one of many who. Uh, And we were very fortunate to have uh, her letters because we often lose the letters of the wives back in the earlier wars because they were obviously sending the letters to their husbands, you know, overseas, and the husbands can keep them, they throw them away, they burn them, whatever it might be. So um, in this case, the 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 soldier was able to keep his wife's letters. So between the two of them, we have two. Thousand letters. They wrote to each other every day for four years. And so just you know, doing the math, it's roughly 2,000. And um, that's one family. Yeah. You know, that, that's, you know, so, and so when I say there's you know, one letter per 16 million, that's just one war. And assuming someone wrote only one letter, but we have people who wrote, of course, hundreds. So I, w- I think it's actually a safe estimate when you take Vietnam and the Civil War and, you know, again, all the conflicts we've been in, that there are tens of millions of letters still out there waiting to be found. <sighs>
0: He's Andrew Carroll and he's been collecting these war letters from all over the place from every war in history and is now making them available to other people turning them into place I mean this is an amazing thing I, I'm sure people are wondering Andrew, what did you go to college for what was what was your career because you said, oh well, I'm just doing this all the time and I'm a director now what did you train yourself for
2: Well it's really funny you say that because I'm working on a new book on, on passion and, and, and you know sort of you know finding things that you're passionate about and I actually wanted to become a professional tennis player. I was like hugely influenced <laughs> by like McEnroe and Borg. That was my era. Right, right. And I came across one slight problem. I wasn't very good at it. So I had to sort of rethink. So yeah. when, I was, when I was in college, um, I actually started out as a philosophy major. And then I uh, moved to English literature, which is what I really focused on. And I think I pretty much thought that I'd like to become a teacher.
0: Now, what's the university that this is now based at, Andrew?
2: So the campaign is part of what we call the Center for for American war letters. And our whole purpose is to seek out and to archive war letters from all different conflicts and we're based at Chapman University in Orange, California.
0: Okay. During the break, you were telling me a little about a couple of letters. One right from a guy who was on one of the ships at Pearl Harbor. Tell me about that.
2: Oh, it's just incredible. And and the whole point is that these letters capture history like nothing else because you have this front row perspective of what it's like to be at these major events. And one of my favorite examples is a letter by a young sailor named William Seiko. And it starts out, Dear Sis, it's 9.05 a.m. We've been bombed for an hour now. I'm trapped here in the Ford engine room. I can hear men screaming over the intercom. People are rushing for their gas masks, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, you know, you look at the upper right-hand corner, and it says December 7, 1941, what? Pearl Harbor, USS New Orleans. I mean, and, and so, fortunately, he survived, which is, of course, how we have the letter. But it's just this absolutely just, you know, riveting. Uh, he actually goes on for 40 pages because it took that long before he was finally rescued. And. Wow. Uh, He he wasn't able to send the letter right away because they immediately imposed censorship, but he held on to it and then uh, sent it to his sister about a year later. And the interesting thing about how that letter was found, that actually did not come from the family. A woman in Seattle moved into a new home, and as she was redecorating, she found that letter kind of tucked between the the headboards and uh, sent it to us because she heard about the Center for American War Mm -hmm. letters and sent us the, the letter. And just like another letter that is just so visually stunning, and what I love is that even when I show this letter to elementary school kids. Their eyes just get wide and they they gasp. We have a letter written by another American soldier. He was at Anzio for the liberation of Italy. And this is uh, April 1944. And he writes to his friend how a shell had dropped right next to him but didn't explode. And so he's writing to his friend, you know, by the grace of God, I'm, you know, I just barely miss being killed. So he, he finishes the letter. He puts it in his rucksack. Moments later, he's in battle, gets shot through the back. Now, he survives. But the bullet hole is in dead center in the letter. And it's just so visually stunning because you can see the burn marks of the bullet that pierce through this letter. And again, we reach audiences of all ages and veterans. Groups and military groups and, and so forth, but I love talking with schools because you know the kids come into this thing like, oh, this is going to be some boring lecture about <laughs> history, and then I, like I start holding up these letters and like they see the bullet hole letter, or, you know, they see letters that have, we have a Civil War letter that's literally wow. uh, stained with mud and blood because it was you know taken off of a soldier at Chancellorsville, and it just they come up and they want to hold them and they want to see them, and I think that's what I love about this project yeah. is that we can really get a new generation interested in history. All right, now you talked
0: about some of the oldest going back to the revolution. Uh, How did you get a hold of those? And what years are we talking about? What did they talk about in that?
2: Yeah, we really, yes. So we go from the revolution to the present day. And uh, this letter from the revolution, I can't remember how we acquired it, but it because we've had it for several years, but it's an original. And the, the penmanship is beautiful. It's a very powerful letter. So it's a young officer telling a friend of his why he had to enlist to fight, that they had to fight for liberty and they had to fight for freedom. And his, you know, his, like so many letters from that time, the wording is just so beautiful and so eloquent. And one of the reasons is, and it's the same with the Civil War, that the troops who were literate, and many were not, had all been raised with one book the King James Version of the Bible, right. that's the reason why those letters from those eras tend to be more kind of florid and so forth, because that's the only kind of way they knew how to write. Huh. And then w- once you get to World War the letters become more conversational, and then and then you get to Korea and Vietnam, there's no censorship. So it's really interesting to see how the letters change from war to war, yeah. you know, based on you know, military restrictions and just sort of the cultural aspects as well.
0: Fascinating. That is absolutely amazing. I've got some World War One letters uh, that a second cousin of my dad had, and I inherited them from a, a distant cousin who passed away who had no family and i got all of it and it's like wow this is so much fun to read about going in the trenches we're going in on rotation you know in world war one they'd put them in the front line then they pull them back and people would rotate in and i got to think the anticipation of going in on rotation had to be just the most intense kind of anxiety you could ever have you know
2: you know and that's why war letters really do stand out among all types of correspondences, because it's life or death. And yep. so the, the love letters are a little more intense, the philosophical letters where they're you know, talking about human nature, or why are we here, why are we doing this, you know, many talk about faith and God and so forth, are more profound because the, the stakes are so high. And you mentioned World War I, so my most recent book is called My Fellow Soldiers, and it's about General John Pershing and the Americans who won the Great War. And what was the, 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 really the inspiration for the book is I can't Came across a bundle of letters by Pershing himself. Wow! And and a lot of people don't know his backstory. But a he's the highest-ranking general in American history. The only general in his lifetime to be given a sixth star, and the uh, Washington was posthumously given a six star after Pershing because they felt nobody should outrank Washington, which right. is a fair fair thing. But <laughs> but, but Pershing it. But here's the backstory to Pershing. A lot of people don't know that um, uh, during the war, but before he was picked to go overseas to lead the forces, uh, his wife and his three little girls were all killed in a house fire oh. and only his young son Warren was pulled out alive and so anyone who's seen a picture he's like right out of hollywood casting just square jawed good looking you know he looks like a general but behind it was this incredible grief and one of the letters he was writing to a friend of his about how he just he could barely survive with the memory of losing his wife and three little girls
0: Wow. Isn't that amazing? I want to share with you a letter from my Uncle Donald from World War II. This is March 5th, 1944, and we're we're running kind of tight on time, but I want to go through some of these things. He writes to my grandfather and grandmother that he's going to start out the letter in different ways to tell them where he is.
2: That's amazing. So
0: he says, if I write, dear folks, Pearl Harbor. Dearest folks, Marshall Islands. Dear mother and dad, Carolyn Islands. Dearest mother and dad, Marianas Islands. My swellest folks, Philippine Islands. Hi, folks, Lower East Indies. Hello, folks, Indian Ocean. Hi, mother and dad, Alaska waters. To my dear folks, Australia. And he had that all mapped out for them, so they had their little code, and so they were able to always keep track of where he was.
2: And he could evade censorship. That's just brilliant. Yeah. And, and see, again, that's why about this project, I've never come across a letter like that. And so here we are talking, and you happen to have this letter that you have know, the more than hundred thousand that we have or have seen. I've never crossed, uh, never come across anything like that.
0: Wow. Well, I, we got to at least get you a scan of that. How do people get letters to you? Do they have to give the original?
2: No, they don't. A lot of people do for a very specific reason. They're afraid that if they keep it in the family, down the line, some generation's just going to throw them away. Sure. And we, we, of course, keep everything, and family members can always you know, come and see the letters here or see copies or whatever it might be. But it, we totally understand the sentimental aspect of these letters. A lot of people just don't want to give up the original. So uh, scans are great. Photocopies are great. Uh, all the information, all the frequently asked questions on our website, very easy to remember, warletters.us. And how to send stuff to us, the donor form, all that's online, or people just have questions. So I also come and visit people. I, I'm sort of the historian who makes house calls. Um, we had a guy in Ottawa, Illinois, who had 15,000 letters he had collected. Oh, wow. He, don't, he donated them all to us. And so we, I went to Ottawa. We FedExed everything back to Chapman and counted them up, and it was about 15,000. We couldn't believe it.
0: I can't believe it just hearing it. That had to be one of the most productive visits you ever made, right?
2: It's like 10% of our collection. It's incredible, yeah.
0: So is all of your collection going to be digitized and available for people to uh, take advantage of and peruse?
2: That's something we definitely want to focus on. We're doing it to some degree. It's just very time-consuming. Our priority right now is to get the letters because literally yeah. a week doesn't go by. I don't hear a horror story. That someone said, you know what? I threw out our family war letters because I figured nobody would be interested. If I had known about your project, I would have sent them to you. So that's why our, our main priority is just to get the word out. And even if you don't want to donate them, just make sure they're you know, well-preserved in your own family. He's
0: Andrew Carroll. He is the head of the Million Letter Project. And, Andrew, just fascinating. I wish we had more time to talk about it want to hear more about those. You know what I'm going to do, though? We're going to have you on our Patron Club bonus podcast so you can tell us some more about these stories. Great stuff. Thank you so much, Andrew. Appreciate it.
2: Thank you. I'm so grateful.
0: Time once again for "Ask Us Anything," and David Allen Lambert is back in studio for a question from a listener. David, and this one actually comes from across the pond. So I think wow. I think you're you're just gaining
1: a few followers over there. Apparently, after Roots Tech London. Yeah, I get ten thousand followers on Twitter now, and <laughs> I'm delighted. Now I just need to get another ten thousand, I suppose. Well, this is
0: from Letty in Stockton-on-Tees, Durham, UK. And she says, I'm getting some DNA matches from Ohio in the U.S. And we know of no connections there at the second cousin level. Any idea what this might
1: mean? Oh, that's interesting. Well, I mean, the one possibility is that this family from Ohio emigrated from the U.K. And they settled out there. So I would reach out to them. But the next question I have is a little bit more difficult to ask. Do they have a relative that they know of that was stationed in England in World War II?
0: Oh. Yeah, So So this could be a surprise paternity situation, potentially.
1: Mm, You would not believe. I had at least a half a dozen people coming up saying that they had ancestors that were probably American doughboys or World War II GIs that were over there. And some, of course, married their mothers and their parents came across the pond and lived together afterwards. Some of them, well, they were there to be the father and then went back home. And that was it. And and
0: probably were none the wiser.
1: Right. And we've had stories on extreme genes where We have uh, people are finding by DNA their American cousins based upon this. So that could be what's going on. So I would definitely reach out to your DNA matches and first off, ask about that UK connection. And if not, my next question is World War I or World War II veterans and their family that were perhaps stationed over in England. Wow.
0: I remember a big story about this. I think it was earlier this year. Maybe it was late last year. I'm not sure. But about a guy who found out he has a half-brother over in France. Mm-hmm. And they shared the same dad yep. who had been over there during World War Two. And uh, it's amazing how much they looked alike <sighs> and their interests. Their accents, though, were quite different.
1: Yeah, just a tad. Yeah, <laughs> just a tad.
0: <laughs> well, and you think about it, I mean, in every war mm-hmm. there has been paternity like this. We've certainly seen it with Vietnam. Oh, sure. And uh, there are so many Southeast Asians who are looking now. There are specific DNA specialists mm-hmm. who work just on finding the paternity of Amerasians who were fathered over in Vietnam during the war there. This just happens in every war. It does, right
1: from the time of the Roman Empire all the way through.
0: And so the DNA test results now are proving it in greater and greater numbers. And people who never considered the possibility are getting surprises. You know, that's the thing. And I get emails about this periodically. You need to talk about the negative
1: side of DNA a little bit more. And there is stuff to talk about. There is. But I, I do see the positive side outweighing the negative. But again, it's case by case. Sure. I'd like
0: you. I see the good outweighing the bad. And I know that if you're on the bad side of a surprise, Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter that four other adoptees finally got the answers to their origins that they've been looking for their whole lives. That's true. You know, but that is the balance we have to look for. And I think all of us, when we go to do a DNA test, have to ask the question, am I prepared for a potential surprise? Because let's face it, nobody's going into this thing expecting a surprise.
1: Well, I mean, two years ago, uh, while I was out here, I found out about my sister Donna. My mother had put up for adoption, and it was not a DNA test, but a DNA test did prove, in fact, her autosomal DNA is closer to me than my other two half-siblings, so... I'm more related to her than the ones I've known my whole life. Isn't that interesting?
0: But it was revealed by other records.
1: It was, yeah. An open birth record.
0: And that's another good point because DNA is not the only way by which these surprises can be revealed. We see it in census records Mm. periodically. Certainly written on birth certificates. I had a friend of mine who found his own birth certificate when he was a kid and it wasn't his daddy's name on the birth certificate and that sent him into quite the spiral for a long time until we eventually used DNA to figure out who his father had been okay thanks so much letty for the email and uh, david this actually comes from another guy named david in uh, minnesota and he says my great great grandfather's brother shows up in prison in the 1880 census what can i do to find more about what he did Ooh,
1: well, yeah, because they're not <laughs> going to tell you the crime, but they'll definitely tell you he's doing time. Um, yes. Well, one of the things I always find is now that we have so many countless newspapers being indexed, whether you used Ancestry or newspapers.com or whatever the service might be, I would search for his name and then put jail. Or arrested Mm -hmm. as key words. And you might find his arrest. Sentenced would be a good word. Mm -hmm. Sentenced as well. And then, of course, you'll find his trial. And they may have his incarceration as to where he's being put in jail. Or even when he may have died in prison. Or maybe he was finally released some years later.
0: I actually found a newspaper article on Newspapers.com that told me that my third great-grandfather escaped
1: from jail and how he did it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, that might be the story that they find on their yeah, relatives, you, you too. never know. Yeah, exactly. And, of course, the 1890 census being gone for most of the country, I would do a search for that relative again in the 1900 and see if he's living free of the barred cell and see if he's married and having children. The other thing is, I start with the state archives because... Obviously, the census is going to say where the prison is. Say, I have a relative that's listed in a state or a federal or a county prison. Where are the records? The state archives will know this. Hmm. Uh, and that's, that would be my first line of attack. That would be where you're going to find the incarceration as the date that he went in, the date he went out. And it'll also probably say his sentencing and what his crime was. Yeah, sometimes if it's later, you even find mugshots of these people. Yeah, I was going to say, are great. Yeah, great. they
0: really are fun and interesting. I found some third cousin or something twice removed, and he was an Alcatraz. Yeah, oh, <laughs>
1: and that's it was a
0: great. Great picture, front picture, profile. I mean, it was really interesting. I thought,
1: well, we'll we'll add that to his page on Ancestry. A resident of the Rock. Yes, <laughs> yes. Well, you know, and it's funny because I mean, our ancestors have gotten from sitting in the stocks of colonial time frame to being in jails. Our ancestors through in the witchcraft trials, for instance. There's jail records for them. So 17th century through 21st century. And now with people that are recently incarcerated, you can Google them online and find they're listed as an inmate on state registries. Sure. So technology is adding more and more dimension to that. But yeah, I think that 1880 relative shouldn't be too hard to find, David. Wow. It's funny. My own grandfather was a bootlegger, and as the story went, he was a chef when he was in the prison, and I did find out that's what he did, and apparently he had an open-door policy that if he felt that he was going to get in trouble, he was allowed to come in and be a resident if he felt like it. Interesting. And the story behind that is all really kind of fun. Is that My dad said that the family never wanted for much during the Depression because the story has that my grandfather was a bootlegger that supplied Joseph Patrick Kennedy, I'd love to find that correspondence (laughs) file. I don't think the Kennedy Library has that. No, probably not. How did you figure out he was a chef in the prison? Uh, Because when he was an occupant in the census, it had his occupation listed there. And also in the prison records, it said, you know, what type of duties performing, you know, know, he wasn't making license plates or breaking rocks. He was a cook.
0: All right. Awesome stuff. All right. Yeah. Thanks so much, David. And thank you, David, for the email. And if you have any questions on any topic concerning family history research, you can email us at Anything at extremegenes.com. And that is it for this week. Thanks so much for joining us, and I hope you got a lot out of it. Thanks once again to Andrew Carroll, the director of the Million Letter Project. Fascinating stuff. If you didn't catch it earlier, make sure you hear the podcast. Talk to you next week, and remember, as far as everyone knows, we're a nice, normal family. This has been Extreme Genes. Share your family story by going to familysearch.org.